there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about social entrepreneurship, that's a business driven to have a social impact in its work, then this is the episode for you because my next guest founded her social enterprise when she was in her early 20s, just a few years out of college and almost a decade later, it is thriving. But before I introduce you to Teresa Vandermeer, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice, insights, and inspiration that you won't find anywhere else. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Teresa Vandermeer a social entrepreneur who believes that business can and should be a vehicle for positive social and environmental change. Teresa identifies with the Horace Mann quote, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. And so by merging her corporate experience at ad giants like Google and publicists and her own research, on female economic empowerment, Teresa founded Work Shelter 10 years ago in 2011. She is a passionate advocate for female empowerment and access to education, as well as environmental justice. And she splits her time between Chicago and New Delhi when she isn't in Costa Rica, where she is now. Teresa, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So have you had your coffee today? I've had two cups of coffee. You have. Is it delicious Costa Rican coffee? It's so good. Oh my God. The coffee, the chocolate, it's fabulous here. And now, honestly, sometimes they taste like the same thing. The coffee is so flavorful. Ooh, mm -hmm. Amazing. So what are you doing in Costa Rica now? You know what? In In the pandemic, I just, I was working from my two-bedroom loft apartment in Chicago for, I think, 10 months straight. And for me, you know, like you said, I spend usually six months out of the year in India. And it was just hard to travel. And so, sorry, I spend six months out of the year overseas. A lot of that's in India, but sometimes I stop on the way in the Middle East or on the way home through Bali. You know, I tend to, to live a life of, of, you know, digital nomad, running my company, from both from Chicago, but also from the road. And so I just thought that I, you know, with Chicago winter approaching, it would be really healthier for me to go work from a place with a warmer climate. So I'm still here. I'm not, I'm not on vacation, but the view in front of me sometimes make it, makes it feel that even though I'm working, I do feel like I'm on vacation. So I yeah. love that. So has it been, it's only been since the pandemic that you decided hey, I can work from anywhere. So why not go to Costa Rica? Ah, I mean, typically I'm traveling all the time. 
So I'll be in Chicago for two months and then I leave and I go to India for eight weeks and I stop somewhere on the way. I stop on the way home. But this has been the first year. Last year, 2020 was the first year that I was in one place for the full year. And it was just time to get some fresh air. And so I did decide to, you know, basically ride out the pandemic in, in Central America and in, in Costa Rica at this moment. Amazing. So tell us about work shelter. And on your website, it's work and the plus sign shelter. Sure. Why is it called work shelter? Sure. So work shelter really is a place for women to come and work and make a fair wage, but it's also about safety. So many of the women that we work with are in, they are domestically abused or they are struggling with poverty situations or they're just, they have hard home lives. And so for them, our center is actually a safe space for them. It's a shelter. So they come for the work, but it's really about the community, the safety, the support that they get from from being in our, our safe environment. That That's the shelter piece for us. As I mentioned in the introduction, you envisioned and then launched Work Shelter just a few years out of school. Sure. How did you do it? Sure. Yeah. Sometimes when I look back and I'm like, how did it get this big? You know, like, wow, this is, this is real. And I kind of feel like, you know, I know that I, I showed up for a lot of years and I put in a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of sacrifice to make it happen. But when I go back to those first years before I even started Work Shelter, there's a, a very clear trail from going to India to do research. So I went to do research on behalf of the University of Michigan and I just met women and spoke with them and heard about their lives. And they also told me the challenges and what could help them. And so many of these women I'd met who'd been widowed or divorced and were just struggling to support themselves and their children, they said that a consistent income would really help. And they were, many of them were working in the informal textile industry. So they would produce something and then someone would purchase it and resell it. And they felt like they weren't getting their fair cut of that. And so I first started sourcing products from different individual women or from artisans in India. So from this nonprofit that does silk weaving or this women weavers cooperative in the Himalayas that makes scarves, like I would purchase those items and then sell them on my college campus. So really, I was, I was 21 years old purchasing these scarves and, and selling them. And then I would just buy more. The money went just directly back to buy more and sell more. I started getting a little gutsy and I would go into boutiques and I always, you know, felt like my, my heart was beating so fast, but I would ask to talk to the shop owner. Maybe they wanted to buy some of the things that I brought from India. And generally I got a lot of like support, you know, from, from these shop owners who probably were surprised to see this, this young woman with a suitcase roll up. But what did you say? I would just say, you know, my name, I would, I would introduce myself. I'm Teresa. I went to India. I worked with these women. They made these things. Would you like to buy any? <laughs> and most of the time they would say yes. And so it, it, it didn't get that much easier. You know, still, every time I'm asking for a sale, it's like, okay, you know, I'm trying to, trying to really, yeah, try, you're showing what you're doing. And a lot of times when people see that, they really, they really want to support. So it started with that. And then it transitioned into 
okay, I'm starting to get some custom orders for these nonprofits or women in India to make these specific products. But I'm facing a lot of issues with the artisan development where there are some challenges with the designs. And at this time to call India, most people didn't have phones. If they did, there was a landline. And to call from the US, you had to go to a gas station and purchase a card that had $5 worth of credit to make a phone call overseas. And so it was very challenging to get the quality. But also I started having challenges with transparency where some of the nonprofits couldn't really share what the working conditions were like, who the individuals working were. And I just felt like, you know, if I'm really going to know that I'm making an impact, but also be able to effectively oversee production, it makes sense to start my own space. And that's Work Shelter. Incredible. And what was it about India? Why did you want to research women empowerment in India? There are plenty of countries around the world where women are not empowered. Sure. You know, I have to give the credit to an anonymous donor or an anonymous donor couple that specifically gave funding to the University of Michigan to send individuals, to send students who didn't have any familiarity with India in order to build connections. So I received a very small grant. It was $3,000 and my plane ticket was $1,500. And so I received a small amount of money to actually go to India and do this initial initial work. And that was just the spark. You know, I made connections, I learned what was going on, and really everything built on top of that first trip. So how many women are working right now at Work Shelter? And I know you also have some men who are working there. And what is it that you're doing that really sets you apart from other organizations, or just makes you more of a best-in-class mm-hmm. social enterprise? Sure. So we have over 40 individuals, 80% of them are women. And it's amazing. You know, we have a training program where we're bringing on new women all the time. So that pace of growth is really fast. We doubled our square footage this year. And I can't, I mean, or we doubled our square footage last year during the pandemic to help better with socially distance to social distance. But now we're looking at outgrowing that space this year. So we're doubling our square footage year over year, which is really crazy. I think what makes Work Shelter special is it really is this effort where it's the center in India is run by two women I've worked with for seven years each. So I've got Ritu, Nitu, and they're co-managers. And so we do have an American team. You know, clearly, clearly I'm a part of it. But really, our work in India is driven by the efforts of women who are from India. And specifically, our production manager, you know, she, is, she lives in the community, or she lives just a block or two away from our actual production center. So when Riti started working with us, she didn't speak English, and she didn't know how to use the computer. And now she's running our production. So to me, that's really special because you know, it's this partnership between our American team and really leadership that's homegrown in India itself. Incredible. And in fact, you had shared, I listened to another podcast interview that you gave, Teresa, in which you shared what the neighborhood is like in New Delhi, where Work Shelter's factory is, and how 
the reality of the lack of environmental justice in India mm-hmm. just hits you every single day when you're there. Yeah. Yeah. Every single time I go, I get very sick. So the last time I went, I had, I got worms. I've gotten typhoid. I've got, you know, you just get bronchitis just from breathing. I don't have respiratory issues. I don't have asthma. I don't have anything that would really, you know, prime me to, to get that sick. Just amoebic dysentery, you know, you, you, it, you really feel what the conditions are when you're there. And it's just, you know, for folks who are not earning very much, even being able to afford clean water is a big barrier. Affording to be able to afford clean water. The water coming out of the, the tap is not suitable for people to drink. It's not suitable for anyone to drink. And so, you know, the river next to us is basically an open sewage pipe, right? It's, you, you, you can smell it for miles around. And so that experience of being there and, you know, also witnessing the women's health struggles associated with living in that environment really has resulted in my passion for the environmental for, for the environmental piece, for the supply chain piece to, to have grown a lot in recent years. You know, I started off wanting to support these individual women and it was about the women first, but now I see there's no way to separate the work from the women and the environmental picture. So I know that the environment or you have environmental sensitivity in the types of textiles that mm-hmm. you're using. Could you talk about what it is the women are producing, what the different textile products are, and who your clients are. Sure, sure. So we can think about this in two main main categories. We do promotional products like tote bags and t-shirts and, and swag. So we do swag for corporate clients, for small businesses, basically anybody who wants a, a logo on a logo on a, a promo item. And then on the other side, we do production for individual designers who have their own brand. And they say, okay, I have a creative vision for what I'd like to make, but I want to make sure it's produced with environmentally conscious materials. And I want to make sure that the people making it are being paid fairly and consistently. And so those are really the two categories of individuals we work with. And so almost all of the fabric that we source at Work Shelter has some sort of environmental qualifier. That means it could be organic. That means it could be recycled. It could be upcycled. And so for folks who are not familiar with the difference, upcycled is basically like we have saris that we buy from a secondhand, from a secondhand market. And one of our designers has them remade into beautiful robes. Her name is Lily Forbes. You can find her on Instagram. So these beautiful silk silk robes that are made out of these saris. So that's, that's upcycled because you're not changing the actual material. You're just, you're using it, you're using them, you're cutting out the parts that don't really make sense and making them into a new product. Now recycled, we use, we do production with our pet, which is material that's made from recycled bottles. Now we're talking about an actual discarded bottle that gets a second life as this fabric. So the bottle is taken it's chopped up, it's recreated into yarn, and that yarn is dyed and made into a fabric. So it has a whole second life. So that's the difference between recycled and upcycled. I know I 
emailed you about this. I'm not sure if you had an opportunity to do it. Do you have any of your products? I do. I do. Yeah. Do you so show I'll just us? show you totally. Yeah. So this this material you're seeing right here, this is the actual R pack. So you can see that it's a foldable bag, or at least you're about to see that it's a foldable bag. Oh, I and love it. And it folds into this little half moon pouch in the front. The whole bag can actually fold down into this. So the, the, one of the qualities about this recycled polyester material is that it's incredibly strong, but it also folds down really small. So, you know, when you go to a grocery store, you're like, oh my gosh, I always forget my bag. This bag is so small. And you can see I'm like tightening it up really little and expands to be really big. So it's good for a grocery store trip. And then we do have one of the bags that we designed for one of our new clients. Their name is Kind Oliver. And so this is a bag that is supposed to last 100 years. It has rivets, amazing pockets. It's going to be made with organic cotton. The leather is from a sustainable source where it's not processed with any bad chemicals and the workers who are doing the processing have proper protections. So yeah, I mean, this, this bag that I'm holding here has been in development to make it perfect for a year. And I know it seems pretty basic, but if you could see the inside, you'd see there's a lot of like different utility qualities and functions that really make it very special. I love it. And I love the fact that it will last longer than most of us. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It'll last a hundred years. That is incredible. Do you have any of your t-shirts? I don't have t-shirts with me because I'm here in Costa Rica, but you know, we can do any color under the sun, any logo. We make thousands and thousands of t-shirts every year for nonprofits who are looking for t-shirts for their volunteers or for corporate clients that want to have some sort of giveaway. So that's a really normal, a normal part of our production. And what we do is we have very simple products where the women who are just coming in off of the street, basically we teach them to make the tote bags and the simple pouches and the things like that first. So that work really helps us you know, keep these new individual women coming in. And then as they ramp up over time, they move over to knits, which is the fabric that the t-shirt's made out of. And every time I go to India, I try to make one of the products just to sort of like stay involved what's going on with the day to day. And I got to tell you, it's hard to make a t-shirt. It is hard. And so, you know, we're used to being able to go purchase these items at really low rates, you know, the, at the H&Ms of the world, but even like the targets. And sometimes when I, I'm in stores like that, I just don't understand how those rates are possible. I know what level of skill and I know what goes into that supply chain. So, you know, we're really, we're really happy to be able to provide a place where these women who don't have these skills can come and they can learn and they can get paid to learn. And what's also awesome is the number of hours that they're working, right? Can you talk yeah. about what their work life is like at Work Shelter? Sure. So typically in factories in India, people are paid on a project basis. And so a client, a factory get a large order. And so they let people know there's work. Do you want it? Come in and just complete it as quickly as possible. That's not how we do things at Worldster. At Work Shelter, we know having a consistent income is really central for these women to be able to plan their lives and ensure that they're going to have money for their kids' school uniforms, that they're going to be able to maybe even save a little bit. And so for me, I make sure that the women get paid every single month 
whether we have work or not, whether their products have sold or not, whether we've been paid for their, for, you know, whether a client has paid us for their work or not, you know, from my first couple years in India, where I did a lot of this talking to artisans, I really learned that that consistency was super important for them. Incredible. And they only work eight hours a day, right? So correct. Correct. Yeah. Which so is they really come important. In, Absolutely. And they have tie breaks twice a day, you know, and it's really up to them. You know, we used to give them an hour lunch break and they would work a little bit later, but they said that they don't want to do that. They want to have a quick lunch so that they can get back to their families at the end of the day. Excellent. I love your own resume's description of what you do as CEO. <laughs> you write, <laughs> I built this. <laughs> There's an exclamation point. Yeah. From an idea in my head to a real live breathing machine that employs over 40 women and four lucky men in a true social enterprise based in both New Delhi and Chicago. Can you take us into a typical day for you, Teresa? Either a typical day for you working outside of Delhi and then a day when you're there. Sure. So when I'm outside of Delhi, one of the first things I do is talk to my team. So I'm either talking to my team in the United States. So I've got a production manager, I've got a marketing manager, we've got the finance. And then in India, I've got production and then finance and logistics. So typically, the first thing I do when I wake up is India's ending their day. So I want to see what's going on. What's going on? What's been the progress overnight? Does anyone need anything from me? But while I still work in the business with managing some orders, my main focus is really on making sure my team has what they need. And you asked me what my favorite, favorite part of the work is. And I said, you know, really working with the women. But my second favorite part of the work is working with my managers and helping them oversee their teams and become better at what they're doing. So, you know, I, I, I adore my team. Like I said, my managers in India, I've worked with them for seven years each. And I'm really invested in, in their growth. And I feel like they, they experience that sense of ownership over like, okay, they, they know that their voice matters and that they can influence what happens. So typically I'm talking to them. Then I'm either talking to prospective clients about work we can do for them, or I'm pitching in on some existing orders that maybe we're having some challenges with, or maybe the team needs some extra support on like communicating with the client about what's going on. So I'm really there for my team. And then sprinkled in between might be conversations with a prospective investor. That's something that we recently started looking into or looking into a special like a project with a consultant on more ethical fibers and deepening the different possibilities available for our fabrics. So it really runs the gamut. And that's part of the fun of it. Did you ever think that you would become an expert on textiles? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Because for me, I came from like a macroeconomic, you know, like women's women, you know, supporting women through getting money in their hands kind of initiative. You know, I, I like to, I like to shop like the rest of them, but, but maybe not actually. For me, the, the clothing and what we make is really a means to an end. And it's important because the whole machine has to work. The system of work shelter does not work if we don't get orders and if we don't get revenue. You know, there's no way to pay the women if we don't get if we don't get orders. And so it's an essential part of the work, 
But for me, my passion is really about the, the individual stakeholders that we work with. Absolutely. How has COVID affected your business and bottom line? I listened to another podcast interview you gave, I guess, earlier in 2020. And you said that you had only had to lay off one person and that was yourself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That is true. I'm really proud to say that we grew during the pandemic. We increased our sales, even though we were closed. We were under lockdown for two full months in India. And, you know, as you can imagine, business disappeared. I cannot believe that we grew. But I think it's a testament to how consciousness around ethical production, around conscious consumption, around, you know, engaging more deeply with the material world that we experience every day is really becoming more important for folks. And so, you know, that's part of it. It's also a testament to the work that my team did. I talked earlier about the promotional product space and the designer space. The promotional product space is largely built on events. And the, you know, clearly there have not been many in-person events at all. And so I think we saw an 80% decline in that space and revenue. But it was all picked up by the designer business. And so during the early years of work culture, we weren't actually able to make complex zone items. But every year we just kept pushing and pushing and we just got a little bit better and a little bit better and we invested more into training And so, you know, when the promotional products business disappeared, we actually had all of these skills that we were able to bring into the designer business. So that, that really, that really helped us get through. I'm so glad to hear that. And please remind me because my brother-in-law and my sister, my brother-in-law owns the business. Well, I should say he's the CEO. He actually just sold it at the beginning of 2020, but he owns a promotional marketing company, big one. And my sister is a vice president there. So we'll have to get work shelter connected. (laughs) So before we talk about what you did prior to going out on your own, Teresa, because there was a lot of zigging and zagging that went on, I thought we could flash back to when you were in college. You went to the University of Michigan and you graduated with a BA in anthropology and international affairs. Sure. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I didn't think I was going to make it through college, Andrea. I really, I felt like I first generation, you know, my parents were both blue collar workers. My mother was a welder, you know, Rosie, Rosie the Riveter. My mother was a welder at a furniture company in, in Michigan. And my father was in the tool and die trade. So it was a, it was a trade. And, and so I really grew up in an environment where that was sort of the norm and, and, and it was encouraged. And so really my desire to call, go to college came from a place of like knowing that the world was bigger. I had this transformative trip to Peru when I was a young teenager. And so I just loved being in school. I loved learning and I knew the world was a bigger place. And so it was really a very big deal for me to even go to the University of Michigan. So and everybody I knew who had gone to college, besides my teachers, had dropped out. They talked about how expensive it was, how hard it was to get through. And so I did have support, significant support for my teachers who encouraged me down that road. So by the time I got to the University of Michigan, I really felt like, 
you know, I had to work through all of college. I remember I was working in over 30 hours a week, a part-time job while, while having a full course load. And so by the time that I got to the end of my degree, I was just like, couldn't believe I had gotten there. It was, it was a marathon. It was a sprint of trying to support myself, but also get through at the same time. So, you know, there was a number of years afterwards where I felt like, oh my gosh, I should have gone into medicine because if I had gone into medicine, I would be able to help people in a more direct way and I would be able to support myself. But really what ended up happening is I had to support myself and I had a career, you know, I had a degree in anthropology that didn't lend itself specifically to any industry or role, but I had interest in women, in supporting women in need. And I had, you know, had this experience in India. So really, I have these sort of like parallel lives where Work Shelter was a passion project. And then I graduated during the heart of the recession. And it was just sink or swim, sink or swim. I had to figure out how to support myself. There were no more, you know, there were no more student loans. The, the part-time work didn't cut it anymore. I had, to, I had to get a career. And for me, that started at a temp agency where I was just placed for one day to answer the phones. I did a good job answering the phones. I was like, oh my gosh, here I am. You know, I went to college and here I am, you know, here I am answering phones. But that, that's where I started. And they said, you know, you did a good job this one day. Why don't you come back for two weeks while our administrative assistant's on leave? So I did that. And during that two weeks, I was working with executive leadership at the company. And they said to me, you know, you're, you're really smart. What's, what's your story? What are you doing here? You know, you're, you're late in the office trying to make sure things are done every day. We'd like to know more about you. And that's when I was brought on for a full-time permanent role in, in client management. And I really kicked off my career. Incredible. So let's see, I'm just going forward here. Which, was that at Fusion? What, what was that, that was first Fusion. job? Fusion yes, Medical Communication. Yeah, pharmaceutical marketing agency. Yeah. Incredible. I yeah. love that you did the temp angle. I actually <laughs> did that as well. Okay. At one point after graduation. Sure. And I was just thinking the other day, I need to be talking about that more on LinkedIn Mm -hmm. because for whatever reason, I'm not seeing it. There may be people talking about temp organizations, but I actually think that's a great way to get your foot in the door. Totally. And and it's not like they said to me, oh, you're temping for one day. This could turn into something. They never said that. They said, come for one day. Okay, come for two weeks. Sometimes they would call me the morning of, I would say, yes, I, I needed the money, I needed the work. And so I would have never known what would come out of that, you know, those first couple experiences temping. Excellent. Not excellent that you didn't know, but excellent that you did get sure. something out of it. Absolutely. You alluded to the fact that you graduated during the last Great Recession. You graduated sure. in May of 2008. Yeah. I have to imagine, Teresa, that you feel a tremendous amount of empathy with the class of 2020 and the class of 2021 who will be graduating this spring. We're doing this interview now in the middle of January of 21. Absolutely. What advice do you have for these young students who have either already graduated or about to graduate into a terrible economy with the coronavirus still around? Sure. You know, I really do have a lot of empathy and compassion. And, and I remember, I remember 
being turned down for a retail job after I had graduated and just feeling like, wow, I can't even get a job at a, at a store yet, even though I have this four year degree. But as I just shared, I just, I needed a different path and there was a different path. And so what I would say, you know, I know it can be hard to just like wake up every day and say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm looking for a solution. I'm looking for a job. I want to work in this space. And to feel that like rejection or to feel like I don't know how I'm ever going to get to the place where I really want to be. And what I would say to that is like, you know, maybe you can't keep your energy up every single day, but try to look at the context. Things will not be like this forever. They probably won't even be like this for one more year. There is going to be an opportunity for you. And so to keep your eyes and your just to keep your attention pointed outward, to keep conversations happening, to keep up those efforts, you know, eventually something will work out. And just just assume that it's not going to work out right now. Assume that it's going to take six months. Give yourself a timeline that's not like, you know, like this has to be resolved. I have to know what I'm doing in the next month. Sometimes we just can't do that. And I come across that even as an entrepreneur where I'm like, I really want to know, like, what will my numbers be next month? I don't know what my numbers are going to be next month. I have no idea what's going to happen, right? Like there are, there are all these things that we can't control. So the only thing that we can control is ourselves and just, and just keeping an, an outward look and a, and a motivation, knowing that the opportunity will arrive at some point. A hundred percent. I agree. Now, I actually have your resume right here and I, I usually <laughs> mark them up. Oh my gosh. To, you know, it's, it's fun to look at. Yeah, you know, and, I have to send mine. So, you know, I don't need to send it generally. So, yeah. Well, I see that you got an internship in January of 2009. You graduated in May and there's like a gap. And that may be the gap when you were, when you were working at the temp agency. Mm -hmm. But you worked for four months at Amnesty International. Yeah, yeah. Would you say that was your first professional experience after you graduated or was there something else? Yeah, I would say that was it. So after I graduated, I went to India and I had this whole big scheme. I was going to take a pony caravan with this Women Weavers Cooperative to Tibet and like work and like, like get footage of them getting this like raw cashmere from these goats that they were herding. I just had this like big scheme. And when I got to India, it, it fell apart. And so I needed to do something. Amnesty International had an office in Delhi. And so I was able to use my writing skills to edit their, edit their magazine. And, and, you know, actually that experience at Amnesty International I mean, it was, it was like interesting to go to protests and, you know, and like actually like be in the streets protesting for women's rights and the police would come and all this stuff. Like that was, that was interesting. But from a day-to-day -day perspective, I just felt like, you know what, I don't really feel, I, I'm like not excited to go edit, edit this magazine. And so that was a, a sort of thing in the keep doing your own stuff. You like go and source these artisans and sell it. And like, and that eventually led to the work shelter. But yes, that time at Amnesty International was the, that the first like post-college opportunity. Got it. And when you say it was like a ding, it was that like your, your gut that was telling you, this is not the right path to keep pursuing in terms of the type of 
do-gooder work that I want to be doing. I want to get my hands dirty. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, I maybe, maybe I'm short-sighted, but I just, I didn't believe that I was really making a significant impact with the, the editing that I was doing. And I'm not saying that that work's not important. I believe, I believe that it does contribute. But for me, I knew that I wanted to really see with my own eyes. I didn't want to just say like, oh, we're putting this thing out into the world. Hopefully people read it. You know, I really wanted to be more direct. Like these women need something. I'm going to see if I can get it to them. Okay, we're going to grow that and grow that and grow that. I love it. And in fact, I just posted this week on LinkedIn about how I think that we find what is the right fit for us in terms of our careers is less of like a chef following a set recipe. And it's more like mad scientist in the laboratory, right? Like throwing in different things, poof, let's see if that works, right? It's like you're working on a formula. That totally resonates. And you don't know how things are going to taste always, right? Like, and just to share like a small moment of vulnerability, some of those early jobs I had, I would wake up and cry every day. I would wake up and cry. I had a hard boss. I didn't want to be working in the pharmaceutical industry. You know, I didn't believe I was, I believe there were ways that I could help people and I wasn't doing it. And I really felt like a deep moral contradiction. But now when I think back to all those times, I think about what I took with me. I learned how to follow project management plans. I learned about timelines. I learned actually on somebody else's dime. I had to show up. I had to do the work, but, but I got paid to do that. And so, you know, work shelter, what I do at work shelter, you know, all these skills, Sure, I developed some as I was going along actually building this business, but a lot of them I brought with me from those jobs that I had that, you know, I woke up and cried for about because I didn't didn't want to go to in the morning. So oh my gosh. You know, it's Thank okay. You. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm giving you a big virtual hug. Thank you. And I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. So a year after Am your amnesty internship ended. And almost two years after you graduated, you get a couple of jobs. The first one is at Champion Learning Center, where you were a tutor for underserved students from failing school districts. Sure. And you were teaching kids geometry, algebra, and other subjects. And the second job is at Fusion Medical Communications, the one where you got that temp position. Yeah. And you were hired then full-time as an associate account executive. And that's where you supported pharmaceutical marketing efforts by creating slide decks. You created sales agent toolkits and direct mailings, among other things. I get it. I get it. Like it was paying the bills, but you were also learning skills. You stayed there for five months at Fusion. And from there, you moved to translations.com. I'm sharing this. I'm kind of breaking it down for our listeners because I think it's really helpful for them to hear how it isn't always a straight line getting to where you want to go, even though you knew in your mind what you wanted to do. Practically, you had to pay the bills. Absolutely. So you were doing what you had to do. And from there, as I said, you went to translations.com. You stayed there for a year. You joined as an account coordinator. You managed almost $2 million. It was a year 
book of business, two million a year book of business, yeah. and ranked among the top three revenue earners. And yeah. your next job was at Google, where you worked as an account manager. And there sure. you also managed almost $2 million, but that was for $2 million a quarter book of business with clients that included Best Buy, Target, and Walgreens. What were you doing in that job at Google? And you stayed there for seven months and you moved to Mojiva. Is that how you Mojiva. it? Mojiva, sure. Yeah. Okay. So what yeah. were you actually doing at Google and what skills were you learning there? Yeah. So what's crazy about my position at Google is I didn't even apply. I Okay. This is wild. I had a resume on monster.com. Monster.com. And I don't even know if monster.com is a thing anymore. But it is. Someone, oh, it is. Okay, gotcha. So people are still using it. Yeah. So someone saw my, re- a recruiter saw my resume and, said, and gave me a ring and said, I have this position. And I said, great, I'd love to interview for it. You know? And so at Google, I got to tell you why I got hired at Google. I mean, I had some experience in so at translations.com. I learned a little bit about technology, but I didn't know anything about ads. And so when I was interviewing at Google, I didn't know that they had actually already decided to hire someone else for the position. And what happened was I was, I had like, I had studied. There was all this terminology like the GDN and this. And I was like, I had gone deep dive for days before my interview into what they actually do. And so when I went into the interview, I was of course prepared, but I felt later that they decided to add headcount. Like they took headcount away from the West Coast office and added it to the New York office, which is where I was living at the time, because of my quote unquote enthusiasm. And so it was 100%, not 100%, but it was like over the top, the soft skills of going in being energized, being excited to be there, being positive, not knowing anything, but showing that I'd done some homework, they decided to move headcount for me. So that, and and my boss loved that about me. And so when I came on board, she really, you know, she, she wasn't there from a day-to-day perspective to teach me all the ins and outs of things. I got some initial training, but I was like a low person on the totem pole with just how did the ad campaign work? How many people clicked on the ads? put a picture of the ad into a PowerPoint deck, send it to the ad agencies who are Google's clients. You know, they are purchasing advertising content from advertising space from Google. And so, you know, I would like for Walgreens, they wanted to get people to download their app. And so I was responsible to just see, okay, we have these little ads that come up when you're reading, you know, reading the news, reading the news on your phone or playing a game on your phone. There's these little ads that come up. And Walgreens would say, you know, their ads would say, click here to download our app. And so my job was just to make sure that the budget was spent properly, that the campaign was as successful as possible, and that the client really felt like their money was well spent. So yeah, that's that's what I did there. I love that example, Teresa, because what you said there about how the job was filled by the time you went in for the interview. But your passion and enthusiasm is what sold them on you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing the fact that you did your homework. Absolutely. That is such a big takeaway that I sure. hope our young listeners and viewers bring with them 
into their future job interviews. Let's fast forward because from Mojiva, where you worked as a team lead and account manager, you actually then moved to the job in India. Is that right? The Associate Director of Offshore Operations Strategy at Vivica. Am I pronouncing that correctly? At Viviki. So Viviki is an an agency that's owned by Publicis. And Mojiva actually went out of business. So I had made this jump from from Google to Mojiva for a significant raise. And so that to me was really important at that time. You know, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of perks of being at Google, but I had student loans to pay. And so I thought that, okay, if I'm into this up, I have the opportunity to not just make more money, but also have a little piece of equity. And if Mojiva gets acquired, I could end up making, you know, making more money. And it's like, if that's what I'm, if I'm here to pay my bills, that's what I need to be doing. If I'm going to be doing a passion project, it doesn't, doesn't matter as much. So when Mojiva went under, I had the opportunity. I had a job offer on my way home from leaving Mojiva when we found out that it was going under. And it was at that time where I, I reconsidered. I could keep going. And in fact, I was going to get yet another raise. I could keep going down this account management advertising track, but I don't want to. This is not my passion. And this doesn't actually help me achieve my goals to to push my career further into strategy. It's just like, I don't want to just be an ad expert. I actually didn't like working in, and I didn't, I didn't care about the ads. I didn't feel like it was making the world a better, a better place. And so it was at that moment that I took a pause. And so I was applying for business school. But at the same time, I was looking for additional work opportunities. And I ended up being the only person that was interviewed for this offshore director role. Because the combination of having spent a bunch of time in India and also been specifically in the nitty gritty of running ads myself, that was an experience that not a lot of people had. And also the willingness to go to India was a huge contribution to that too, because they needed somebody who was going to go to India and work with the team once a quarter. And a lot of people don't, you know, don't want to go and sort of like disrupt the comfort and normalcy of their, their lives from a, from a day-to-day perspective. But that's really how that next bridge happened. I took a moment to say, you know what, I have to pause and it's a luxury I need to take right now, but it's not a luxury because I know if I keep going down this track, I feel like I'm on like a treadmill of doing work that is not really, it's paying the bills, but it's not furthering my career goals. So in the early days, I just had to pay the bills. And then after that, I needed to start making strategic decisions about how to better achieve my life goals. And that job, as mentioned, became the bridge to running Work Shelter full-time. Love that. In the Espresso Shots interview, and Our listeners should check out show notes to see if Teresa's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Just check out show notes for this episode to see if it has. She mentioned that she, as she said, was applying to business school and then the Viviki opportunity came about and she was like, well, hold on a second. I can go to India, which is really what I want to do, even if it isn't exactly the job function that I want to do. And you had already started work shelter. So you were like, then on my weekends, I can work on my side hustle. 
Exactly. Exactly. So what did you do at Viviki? What does it mean to be an associate director of offshore operations strategy? Yeah. So basically you have these account managers who are running the advertising campaigns in, in the U.S. And this is how it was working at the time. So say that example about Walgreens. So Walgreens has these ads. You have the American team that's making sure the ads are placed properly. And at this company, they had... And actually, I'd had a little experience with this in, at Google where they had an offshore team who could do the reporting for you. So I had sort of like come up with an easier way to engage with offshore at Google. And so the role was really to help facilitate the relationship between these American digital ad managers and the India team who was doing the reporting for them. And, you know, of course, this was a, a cost savings measure for Viviki. It was also a really important role because Viviki has all these other ad agencies who were then having their reporting done by the offshore team as well. The offshore team was quite big. So I had over 70 individuals at that time who were just doing these ad campaigns or these reports. So my job was to help encourage the U.S. team to continue to work with the India team, but also sort of smooth things over. But then when I went to India, I saw, I'm like, oh my God, all these, their early 20s, by that time, my late 20s, so you know, but like all of these like young individuals working on the offshore team had engineering degrees. They are super smart. And here they are just like doing like really, really menial work. And so I came with, with this idea where I knew that there was more possible for them. And so I came up with the idea of that small campaigns to actually be managed by the India team. And so we launched a pilot project where there were five individuals who started doing that. And I'm happy to say that those were some of the first individuals in India doing that kind of work. And one of them ended up going and working at I think Accenture, India, and the next one ended up going to William and Mary in the United States. Like all these individuals got awesome opportunities. And one of the amazing things was all these individual women. And so they happened to be the strongest communicators. So basically what happened at that time was that work, that ad campaign support had to happen at night. And so those individuals, those women working, there's a policy in this town in India where any woman who's working at night, it's like a free cab home. Like she gets like a free ride home. And then there's an armed guard in the vehicle with her. And I had that experience where I was like, this is actually very like to have both a, dr a driver and a guard. You know, you really feel kind of like intimidated. And so one of the reasons because of that, the leadership team in India avoided putting women into positions where they were working at night, but it also meant that they weren't given these work opportunities. And so I found out that women were specifically being excluded from this new opportunity. And I just, I brought the company's discrimination policy and I said, you know, we're not, we can't make this decision for these women. It's really up to them. We can't just say that they're not able to get these roles because they're women. So for me, that was this amazing experience where it's like, sure, I definitely have impact at Work Shelter on women, but I also had a significant impact on these specific individuals. And kind of sort of just to, to wrap that piece up, one of them decided she wanted to leave that industry and she now co-manages Work Shelter. So oh, incredible. Yeah, so that's me too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story, Teresa. It's Absolutely. amazing. 
two final time for coffee questions. I know we've been going here for a long time. You are such a sport. These are questions I try to ask all of my guests. If you could share a time in your professional life when you really struggled, and you're probably thinking like, what time was I not struggling? Oh, oh 100%. <laughs> but, but in particular, it may have been when you were working at Mojiva and you lost your job because the company went under. It could have been another point. But the most important thing here is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Oh, a lesson in the process. You know, I do think that the the hardest part was the beginning. The hardest part was the beginning when I I didn't have any infrastructure. I didn't have connections. You know, I didn't have, you know, my parents didn't, weren't white collar workers who knew people. Like I just, I had to build that, that road brick by brick. But I think the, the lesson from that is that even when things are hard, now or when things were hard when I lost my job at Mojiva, it feels like nothing could be as hard as when I first graduated and I didn't have a single clue in the world about what was going to come next. And it was a recession, you know? And so I think the takeaway is like, once you get starting started, there's momentum and it's, it's never easy, but it definitely gets easier. Definitely gets easier. Well, that goes right to my heart because that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. So I, I feel you there. Last question, Teresa, if you could go back to college, back to Michigan and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Oh my gosh. I think I would have, I would take more business classes. You know, I, I had fun taking Russian cinematography. I had fun taking Japanese poetry. I had fun, you know, like all these things were were interesting, were interesting. But I, I do wish that I had more practical, tangible skills that would help me build the foundation for what Work Shelter is today. So, you know, I think, like I said, the, the accounting class, the legal class, I think these things would have just been, been worth the effort and worth the time. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time, Teresa. And before I say goodbye to you, I want to make sure that you are able to let our viewers and our listeners know where they can find you and how they can support Work Shelter. Sure. I've had such a wonderful time being here. And also, like anybody who's listening to this, I really... I just want you to know that I believe in you and I'm so excited to see what you bring into the world. So if you'd like to connect, I'm the activist entrepreneur on Instagram. Workshelter.co is our website. We have Workshelter as our Instagram handle. We're also on Facebook. Yeah. So thank you. So, thank you so much for listening. Oh my gosh. I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today for that delicious Costa Rican chocolatey coffee with me and the T4C community. Teresa, huge congratulations on everything that you have achieved. You are such an inspiration to me and I have no doubt to hundreds, if not thousands of other young people. Actually, I shouldn't put myself in the category as a young person, <laughs> but as a woman entrepreneur, I'm like... You know, I'm giving you a high five, girl, right across the Wi-Fi signal here. Yep, yep, high five. 
but you are so awesome. Your spirit is beautiful. And I just, the world is a better place because people like you are in it. I'm so grateful for your time, Andrea. Thank you. And for what you're doing as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.